Let's give our attention now to the reading of God's most holy word. Now, there was a famine in the land. So Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance, and when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife, then they will kill me, but will let you live. Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh. And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake, he dealt with Abram, dealt well with Abram. And he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister, so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. Let us go now to 2 Timothy chapter 2 and look at verses 1 through 13. Here Paul is writing to Timothy, a pastor in the early days of the church. And he says to him, You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. It is the hard-working farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Think over what I say, Paul said to Timothy, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as is preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. But the word of God is not bound. Therefore... I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they may also obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. The saying is trustworthy, for if we have died with Him, we will also live with Him. If we endure, we will also reign with Him. If we deny Him, He will also deny us. If we are faithless, He remains faithful, for He cannot deny Himself." So far the reading of God's holy word. May the Lord bless the preaching of it also this morning to our nourishment and to our edification. Uh, Brothers and sisters, if we are to fully appreciate the passage that is before us today, that is the one which describes the journey of Abram and Sarai down into Egypt and then back again, it is important that we compare it with what came before and what will come after in the narrative of Genesis and also the rest of Scripture. Concerning the things that will come later in the narrative of Genesis and the rest of Scripture, notice that this episode about Abram and Sarai is typical. And by that I mean what Abram and Sarai experienced and what they do in this narrative will be experienced and done by others in future generations, ultimately on a much greater scale, and even by the Christ Himself. Uh, Here in Genesis 12, 10 through 20, we learn that a famine 
drove Abram and Sarai down into Egypt. Now, that basic plot should sound very familiar to you. Uh, There, Abram and Sarai stayed for a time. There, they were threatened. There, God was faithful to preserve them. And from there, God would bring them back into the land of promise, more prosperous than they were before. God was faithful to preserve them. Does that plot there sound familiar to you? It should. Because the very same thing would be experienced by Abram's descendants. In the days of Jacob and Joseph, Abram's descendants would be driven by famine to go down into Egypt. There they would stay, not for a short time, but for a very long time. There they would be severely threatened and mistreated. God would be faithful to preserve them, and from there God would bring them back into the land of promise, much more numerous and prosperous than, than before. And of course, I am here referring to uh, the exodus of Israel from Egypt in the days of Moses. So the journey of Abram and Sarai down into Egypt and then back again was typical. It was, in a sense, prophetic. It typified that which would happen all over again on a greater scale amongst the descendants of, of Abram. I think it is also worth noting that the Christ himself would experience something similar. In Matthew chapter 2, verse 13, here is what we read, that when they, that is the wise men, had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child, that is baby Jesus, and his mother Mary, and flee where? Where did they go? To Egypt. They were threatened by something and they were to flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet out of Egypt, I called my son. And so here I am simply drawing your attention to this pattern that is established in the life of Abram. He and Sarai went down to Egypt for a time. There they would be preserved by God and brought back out again to the land of promise. And this sort of thing would be experienced by future generations again and again. I think in order to draw our attention to the providential guidance of God, that here He is bringing about His purposes uh, through His people because He is sovereign over all. The experience of Abram and Sarai was typical. It established a pattern that would be repeated throughout the history of redemption. Therefore, the event had a prophetic quality to it. And the message for future generations was clear. And this message was established from the start. God is able to keep His promises. He is able to preserve His people as they sojourn in foreign places. He is the sovereign king, not only over Abram and Israel, but over all the nations of the earth. Even the pagan kings are not outside of his sovereign control. Uh, Surely he would be faithful to bring about the promises that he made to Abram at the start. Now, more comparisons could be made between this text and future happenings in the history of redemption But we also need to compare this text with what has come immediately before it. We must remember that promises were just made by God to Abram. That cannot be forgotten. Remember that the Lord spoke to Abram saying, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. That is to the land of Canaan. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing 
And I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. These are wonderful, wonderful promises uh, made to Abram by God. And after Abram was obedient to leave his father's land, the land of Ur, and then after that the land of Haran, and came down south into Canaan, he sojourned there into that place, and the Lord reiterated these same promises to him, saying, To your offspring I will give this land. So there Abram stood, right in the midst of the land of promise, and God said to him again, To your offspring I will give this land. And so Abram built there an altar to the Lord, who had appeared to him in that place. Everything that we encounter in this passage, the one about the journey of Abram and Sarai down to Egypt and back again, must be considered against the backdrop of the call of God and the promises of God given to Abraham just beforehand. When we approach the passage in this way, it becomes clear that although Abram initially responded in faith and in obedience to the call of God and to the promises of God, he soon floundered. When things got difficult, when the heat was turned up, he began to stumble. He took matters into his own hands. And instead of trusting in God to fulfill his promises, instead of walking by faith and in simple obedience to the commands of Scripture, he began to live according to his own wisdom and power. This he did when things got difficult. And so I'm sure you can already see that there is a lesson here for us in this passage. God has called us to Himself through faith in Christ Jesus by His Word and Spirit. Has He not also given us His promises? We know His Word and we have been called to live in faith and in obedience to Him in all things. But as you know from experience, brothers and sisters, life is accentuated by trials and tribulations even for the people of God. And it is during these difficult times that the people of God are often tempted to doubt the promises of God and to live not by faith and in simple obedience to Him, but according to their own wisdom. Brothers and sisters, may it never be so. May we imitate the faith of Abram that was displayed to us so wonderfully in the previous passage, but also learn to flee from the floundering of Abram that we see in the passage that is before us today. After being told of Abram's faith and obedience in verses nine, 4 through 9 of Genesis 12, in verse 10 we read these simple words, Now there was a famine in the land. This uh, declaration concerning a famine in the land is intended to surprise the reader, I think. Think of it, God had just promised to bless Abram and to give him this land. That's where we were left off in Genesis 12. God had just promised to bless Abram and to give him this land. And therefore the reader probably assumes that God will therefore always bless Abram. That life from this day forward would be smooth sailing for him. And perhaps the reader also assumes that God would immediately fulfill this promise concerning the possession of the land. Abram is blessed of God, blessed by Him. Certainly, Abram will prosper in this life, always. And God has promised this land to Abram. And so what do we expect to read next except the accomplishment of 
uh, that promise, the, the fulfillment of that promise. But instead we read these words, now there was a famine in the land. We, we hear not of prosperity, not of success, but of, of difficulty instead, of trial and tribulation. Uh, brothers and sisters, though Abram was ultimately blessed of God, that did not mean he would be spared from the trials and tribulations of this life. And though Abram would ultimately inherit the land, that did not mean he would inherit it immediately. And is not the same thing true for you and for me in Christ Jesus. Again, the experience of Abram is typical for all of God's people who live in this world. Those who belong to God through faith in Christ are truly blessed. But this does not mean that they are going to be without trials and tribulations in this world. Those who belong to God through faith in Christ are heirs with Christ. They have, by virtue of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, already come to possess the new heavens and new earth in Him. It is yours if you are in Christ Jesus. Already, because of your union with Christ, you are co-heirs with Him. But as you know, it is not yours yet. You are still awaiting the new heavens and the new earth. You, you long for it. Your hope is there. You can't wait to the day when you see it, but it is yours already in Christ Jesus. And so that is why I say this experience of Abram is typical for all of God's people who live in the world. Truly blessed, possessor of the land, but not always without trials and tribulations, and not yet when it comes to the possession of the land. In fact, Abram would never possess the land, but only his descendants would. And so the scriptures speak very plainly concerning the difficulties that those who are blessed in Christ will experience in this world. You, you have to see this, friends. If you have been told by someone that in Christ Jesus life is going to be smooth sailing, you have been lied to badly. Jesus himself spoke to his disciples saying, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. In my experience, life is often very difficult for the people of God. In Acts 14.21, we read, When they, Paul and Barnabas, had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith. Why would they need to encourage them to continue in the faith? Shouldn't that just be natural and easy for us to do? Well, it's because they were experiencing difficulties. And in fact, this is what Paul and Barnabas said to them. They said to them that through many trials and tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. This is the way for God's people in this world. We will enter into the kingdom of God if we are in Christ Jesus, the new heavens and the new earth. But it will be through many tribulations. And so, brothers and sisters, I am saying that we should not be surprised when we read that there was a famine in the land immediately after that land was promised to Abram, and neither should we be surprised when trials and tribulations come upon us. This is what Peter explicitly said in 1 Peter 4.12, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you also may rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. That passage is probably familiar to you. You've heard it before. 
but perhaps you yourself have been surprised when a fiery trial comes upon you. You know intellectually that it's true that those who belong to Christ in this world will struggle and be tempted by tribulation. But sometimes the people of God are still surprised when the fiery trial comes upon them. We are warned here by Peter not to be surprised by it, but to see that in it there is a test, and in it we are strengthened ultimately by God as He preserves us through it. It should be remembered that Christ Himself, who is our Lord and Savior, and who was blessed of God more than any other, was anyone more blessed of God than Christ? He suffered in this world. The same may be said of all of His apostles. And so to be blessed of God and to be an heir of the new heavens and earth in Christ Jesus does not guarantee a life without tribulations. Uh, Far from it, trials and tribulations are permitted in this life so that we might be tested and purified through them. This is simply God's way. This is God's way. And so listen again to Peter's words. 1 Peter 1, verse 3 Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you. It is already yours in Christ Jesus, brothers and sisters. It is an inheritance that will not pass away, and we are guarded by God's power through faith, for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this, in all of this wonderful news, you rejoice, Peter says, though now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Here is the clear teaching of Scripture. Brothers and sisters, if you are in Christ Jesus, the new heavens and new earth are yours. You are blessed, but you will also endure trials and tribulations so that your faith might be tried and tested and so that you yourself might be purified. That is exactly what we see happening to our father of the faith, Abram, in the early days after he was called to walk in faith and not by sight. Abram had been called by God. He had received the promises of God concerning the new heavens and the new earth. He had responded in faith and obedience initially, and then his faith was tested. There was a famine in the land that God had promised to him not long before. In verses 10 through 13, we discover that Abram, instead of walking by faith as he had done before, was in this instance found to be faithless. Instead of believing upon these promises of God, his faith floundered. Look at verse 10 again. Now there was a famine in the land. So, how did Abram respond to this difficulty? So, Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. It was not just a famine, but a severe one. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance, and when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife, then they will kill me but they will let you live. Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. So much could be said about this text. I'm really not sure if we should criticize Abram for going down to Egypt to sojourn there. I don't know if there was air in that decision. 
the scriptures don't say that that was forbidden to him. Perhaps he planned to go down to sojourn there for a time, even though the word sojourn does imply that he would dwell there and live there. But perhaps he planned to go down there for a time, trusting that the Lord would also provide an opportunity for him to return to the land that had been promised to him. So maybe that's the case. But on the other hand, I think it is a bit unsettling to learn that Abram was willing to so quickly leave the land promised to him and to sojourn in Egypt as a foreigner. All things considered, the the flavor of this passage seems to indicate that Abram was beginning to lose sight of the promises of God. It seems as if he was beginning here to compromise. What I am sure of is that Abram displayed a lack of faith by telling a half-truth, which is in in fact a lie, concerning his relationship to Sarai, who was his wife and his half-sister. That might seem very strange to you, but it is true. Sarai was his half-sister. See Genesis 20, verse 12, for a direct statement about this. But what did Abram do? He, He was afraid. He was afraid because he knew his wife was very beautiful, and he was concerned that the Egyptians might notice they would kill him in order to take her as one of their wives. Brothers and sisters, it is never good to live your life being driven by fear. Do you understand that? That'll bring you to some really bad places. And clearly that's what Abram was doing here. He assumed that this would happen and he was overcome by fear and he began to concoct a plan to to, to make things go in the way that he thought that they needed to go. Fear and faith cannot coexist. We should walk by faith and not by fear. But Abram was afraid and his faith was weak. And being driven by fear, Abram concocted a plan to tell the Egyptians that Sarai was his sister and not his wife. Again, this was a half-truth, for Sarai was his half-sister, but it was also a lie, for she was, in fact, his wife. Think of the precarious position this put Sarai in, by the way. This is a bit of a tangent here, but when I do enter into a marriage counseling with folks, uh, and I see that a wife is struggling to submit to a husband who is less than perfectly obedient to the Lord always. There is that famous passage in First Peter where wives are encouraged to submit to their husbands as Sarai did to Abram, as Sarah did to Abraham, ultimately entrusting herself to whom? To the Lord. And I often say this, our assumption is, well, of course Sarah submitted to Abraham. He's a hero of the faith. He was a tremendous and godly man. It was easy for her to submit to him. It's not so easy for me, the wife says, to submit to my husband because he's not quite as godly as Abraham was. Do you see where I'm going with this? Abram was not always faithful. In fact, the position that he put his wife into here by this plan that he concocted all on his own was a terrible position. He lied about his relationship to his wife. He essentially abandoned her and she was taken into Pharaoh's harem. There was probably a method to Abram's madness though. In that culture, brothers had a lot of power. Uh, They were the ones to give their sisters away in marriage, especially if the parents were no longer around as was the case here in this situation. And perhaps Abram reasoned that if Sarai was to be noticed and pursued, he, as her brother would be able to delay, to stonewall, and even to refuse to give her up. You see, perhaps uh, that was his plan. 
maybe it, maybe it was, maybe it wasn't. Uh, maybe he thought that he could, as her brother and from that position, actually protect her from harm. He probably even reasoned to himself that in this way he would be helping the plan of God along, right? God gave him all of these wonderful promises concerning the land and a great people and nation being brought from him. And uh, perhaps he thought, well, in this way, I'll give God a hand. Uh, after all, what good would the promises of God be concerning a great nation being produced through him if he was dead? <laughs> it wouldn't work. And isn't it strange how we can sometimes reason within ourselves to justify our sin and rebellion against God? Have you ever noticed this about yourself? In a time of temptation, in a time of difficulty, how you can begin to think those kinds of thoughts? Well, yes, I know God's Word says this, but wouldn't it be better? Wouldn't it be a little bit more prudent? Wouldn't it be a little more efficient if I just took this course of action instead? We see that sort of thing going on, I think, in Abram's mind here. He's reasoning within himself. He's justifying his actions. He, being motivated by fear, uh, begins to make decisions on his own. Um, and yes, he probably had a plan. There was a method uh, to his madness. But I don't think his plan took into consideration the possibility that Sarai would be noticed by Pharaoh himself. And when your, your, your sister is noticed by Pharaoh himself, whether or not you're willing to give your sister in marriage uh, doesn't matter anymore. Uh, and I think that's what happened. Uh, Pharaoh got his way. Of course he did. He's the most powerful man in all of Egypt. Sarai was noticed by Pharaoh and she was taken into his harem. Brothers and sisters, not only is it foolish to make decisions being driven by fear, it is also foolish to make decisions according to human wisdom and cunning. There is a wisdom from above that is to be pursued, but there is also a wisdom from below. And certainly any course of action that involves transgressing the law of God that has been so clearly revealed to us is foolish. It is to be avoided. That wisdom is wisdom from below and not from above. If Abram were walking by faith and not by sight, he would have refused to lie. He would have said, this is simply not an option for me. I will do right. I will obey God's law. I will not transgress it. And I will trust that the Lord will sort it all out. Certainly this is not an option for me to willingly sin, to willingly transgress the law of God. He would have gone on in faith, living in perpetual obedience to God in all things. This is what Abram would have done if he were walking still by faith and not by sight. But instead, he decided to take matters into his own hands, to act not according to the law of God, but according to the ways of the world. And as you can see, things didn't turn out so well for him. Friends, they never do when we abandon God and go the way of the world. We might seem to prosper for a time, but the wages of sin is always death. This we know for sure. Lastly, know that though Abram was faithless in this instance, God was still faithful to keep his promises. Look at verse 16. There we read that for her sake, that is for Sarai's sake, the Pharaoh dealt well with Abram. And he had sheep and oxen and male donkeys and male servants and female servants, female donkeys and camels. So the Pharaoh lavished Abram with, with riches and with honor. 
and with many possessions. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai also. That should sound a little familiar to you. Does that not also typify something that will happen later in the history of Israel? Of course it does. The Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh, and I don't know how he figured all of this out, but eventually called Abram, Abram and said, What is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister? So that I took her for my wife. Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. So despite Abram's faithlessness, God is still faithful to keep his promises to Abram. Notice a few things about this portion of the text. One, notice that ironically, the Egyptians are portrayed as having more integrity than Abram in this situation. Abram sojourns down into Egypt and he assumes that there are going to be wicked men who who deal treacherously with he and his wife. He assumes that, but ironically, it's almost as if they have more integrity than Abram himself did. Pharaoh, having been afflicted by God, was upset with Abram that he would lie and put him in this position where he would take another man's wife into his harem, inappropriately so. Two, notice that Abram was blessed by God despite his faithlessness. And I think this is very important to recognize here. The Pharaoh dealt well with Abram. He made Abram to prosper for Sarai's sake. And Pharaoh sent Abram away, a much more wealthy man than when he came into Egypt. And this again corresponds to what Israel as a nation would experience at the time of the Exodus. Remember that Israel would come out of Egypt a great multitude and they would plunder the Egyptians as they went out. They were sent out with great treasures. And so too, Abram plundered the Egyptians despite his faithlessness. And three, notice that the Egyptians were cursed. And so what I'm wanting for you to see here is that this proves what was said before concerning the promises made to Abram in Genesis 12, 1 through 3. Clearly, those were promises and they were not stipulations. Clearly, they were gospel and not law. If the words spoken to Abram were stipulations and laws which required Abram's obedience in order to secure the blessing, then the blessing would have been forfeited not long after it was offered to him, given Abram's faithlessness. But here we see that Abram was blessed despite his shortcomings. And this is by the grace of God alone. These blessings came to Abram and the curses came upon the Egyptians, not because of the faith and obedience of Abram, but in spite of his faithlessness. So friends, we are to see that God is faithful to fulfill His promises, even when we are faithless. If we are faithless, Paul reminds Timothy, He remains faithful, for He cannot deny himself. And here we see this illustrated so beautifully before us in this narrative concerning Abram and his faithlessness and God's faithfulness in spite of him. Friends, I would like to move towards the conclusion of this sermon and to suggest some application. I I hope that you uh, do have a practice of this to go home on the Lord's Day and to not immediately run off to 
work or recreation, but to reflect upon the Word of God which has been preached, because there are many opportunities for application to be drawn from this text if we would only take the time to reflect upon the text of Scripture and to apply it to our life. But here are a few suggestions. One, I will ask you this, what is your famine? What is your famine? And by that I mean, where is the Lord testing the genuineness of your faith? What trial or tribulation are you facing that the Lord is using to refine your faith? In what way are you being tempted to doubt the promises of God that are ours in Christ Jesus and to live not in obedience to God, but according to the wisdom of this world? I'll ask you to reflect upon that uh, today, I think if you were to take the time to do it, you would identify something. Yes, in, in this way I am feeling the pressure. In this instance, I, I think I am experiencing something like what Abram experienced as he stood there in the land, just promised to him, and then a famine, a severe famine, famine came into the land. Yes, this is my famine. This is an area in which the Lord is testing my faith. This is a trial and tribulation clearly that the Lord is using to refine me. What is your famine? Two, having identified your famine, I ask you, will you continue on in faith and in obedience, or will you abandon the way of Christ to live according to human wisdom and cunning? The way forward for us, brothers and sisters, should always involve faith in Christ and simple obedience to His commandments. Sometimes we make life way too complicated. Do you know what I mean by that? We're facing some difficulty and we begin to, having been motivated by fear, uh, we begin to uh, plan for ourselves a way forward. We, we, we make things way too complicated. Instead of just saying, I'm going to obey Christ today and I'm going to obey Him tomorrow, I am going to live according to His commandments day by day and trust that the Lord is going to see me through this difficult circumstance that I am in. For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments, John says. And His commandments are not burdensome. Do you hear how simple that is? Do you love God? Then walk according to His commandments. And His commandments are not burdensome. But how easy it is for us, brothers and sisters, to compromise. How easy it is for us to to take what seems to be the easy way, how easy it is to believe the lies of the evil one when he says, do you really expect to prosper in the world by simply keeping the commandments of God? Have you ever heard that, that deceptive voice? Do you really expect to prosper in the world by keeping the commandments of God? How could you? Everyone else is going to get ahead because they are cunning. They are shrewd. But here you are trying to do right in the world. You're going to fall behind, surely, you know. That's the voice of the evil one. If you would only, then you would be respected. If you would only, then you would be prosperous. If you would only, then you would be truly happy. Fill in the blanks, brothers and sisters. I think you have been tempted in this way, as I have as well. The ways in which we are tempted to compromise are really too numerous to list. If you would only tell this lie, this little lie, this little white lie, if you would only be willing to tell this lie, then you would prosper. If you would only use foul language like the rest of them so as to fit in, then you will prosper. If you would only gossip like the rest of them, then you would prosper. Perhaps those last two points are particularly directed towards our teenagers. I don't know. 
But even adults are tempted in this way, aren't we? Just use the language that they use. It's not that big a deal. Then you'll be appreciated, you'll be received, you'll advance, you know. Gossip like the rest of them. If you would only employ manipulative tactics in the marriage or at work or within the church, then you'd get your way. Just be shrewd and cunning, you know. Manipulate. That's what everyone else is doing, right? And if you don't participate, surely you'll fall behind. It's the voice of the evil one. If you would only steal this, if you would only join yourself to this person, etc., etc. There are so many ways that the Christian is tempted to abandon their simple and sincere devotion to Christ to go the way of the world. And brethren, rarely do Christians apostatize from the faith all at once. More often than not, the road to the denial of Christ is a long road, the journey consisting of many little steps and little compromises along the way. We reason within ourselves and we justify our actions, saying it is really not so bad that I grow emotionally attached to this man who is not my husband or this woman who is not my wife. Is drinking to the point of drunkenness really so bad so long as it is occasional and I have a designated driver? Is, really, is it really such a problem that I self-protect within the marriage, refusing to submit to and love as the scriptures have called me to? And on and on we go. And I am urging you, brothers and sisters, to ask the question, where is my faith in Christ being tested? In what ways am I being tempted to live according to the world and according to the standards of the world instead of by faith and in simple obedience to the commands of Christ. Christians, we should have a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. It's the language of Paul in 2 Corinthians 11.3. Our faith in Christ should be sincere and it should be pure and we should not compromise in any way. Thirdly, I have noticed that many are tempted to compromise in their personal lives But I have also noticed that many are tempted to compromise even when it comes to the public worship of God. Uh, The scriptures are clear, brothers and sisters, that we are to honor the Lord's Day Sabbath and to keep it holy. It is to be a day set apart as distinct. It is to be a day where we cease from our worldly recreations and employments. It is to be a day for assembling together with the people of God to engage in the public worship of God. And the scriptures are clear concerning these things. The law of God says, honor the Sabbath day to keep it holy. And the New Testament scriptures warn us, saying, and let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near, that is a clear allusion to the old covenant law concerning the Sabbath day and to the practice of old covenant Israel to assemble together as the church. And if you have not yet been convinced that the fourth commandment still applies to the people of God today, I'd be happy to demonstrate it to you from the scriptures. But assuming that it is true, my exhortation to you is to not compromise, not only in your personal life and your personal walk with God, but also when it comes to the church and to the public worship of God. Do not go the way of the world. Do not neglect the assembly of the saints and the public worship of God. Brothers and sisters, I think that all sorts of temptations come upon us when it comes to our life together as the church. I feel it all the time as a pastor within the church. 
Uh, the world says do things this way. The church is so quick and far too quick to abandon what God's word has clearly revealed and to go the way of the world and to act according to the wisdom of the world, compromising in regard to what the scriptures have so clearly said to us. As a pastor, I can feel that pressure. Do you really need to teach that doctrine, pastor? It's clearly taught in the scriptures, but it's offensive to the world. Maybe you should be quiet about that one. Uh, do we really need to do discipline in the church according to the scriptures? I mean, it just, you come across uh, kind of like a weirdo, to be honest. You know, the world looks in upon you and says, what are you guys doing here in the church? Uh, why are you concerned to discipline according to the scriptures? Uh, the pressures are all about us. But brothers and sisters, not only do we need to uh, maintain a sincere and pure devotion to Christ personally, uh, never compromising when it comes to the obedience to God, God's Word in our personal life, so too uh, in our life together as the church of God. Friends, may we imitate the faith of Abram in Genesis 12, 1-9. There is something to be appreciated there, that he would leave Ur and Haran and sojourn to a land that he did not know, uh, based upon God's call and based upon His promises, is impressive. But may we also refuse to compromise as Abram did in Genesis 12, 10 through 20. May we also remember and take comfort in the fact that if we are faithless, God remains faithful, for He cannot deny Himself. Let's bow together for a word of prayer. Father in heaven, help us. Help us to live in obedience to Your Word always. Help us to walk constantly by faith and not by sight. I pray for myself and for my brothers and sisters in Christ that You would help us to see where it is that we are being tested. Sometimes we're not even aware of it, Lord. Sometimes we're oblivious to it. But show us where it is that we are being tempted to deviate from what You have revealed to us and to go the way of the world. Lord, help us today as we reflect upon these things by Your Spirit and press these truths upon our hearts. Convict us of sin and renew in us a steadfast spirit that we would walk faithfully in this world. God, we are grateful for Christ Jesus crucified and risen. We are grateful that He Himself was the faithful and blessed man who kept Your law perfectly, who passed the test, who finished the race who died in our place, who was buried and ro- who, who was raised again victorious. We thank you for him. Without him, we would be lost. So help us to look to him and to cling to him and to obey him always. Help us, help us in all these things, we pray in Christ's name. And all of God's people say, Amen.